Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Breast Cancer Conversations. As always, I am so excited to be starting my week off with you, my tribe, my friends, my community. It is just always a pleasure. So thank you for tuning in, as always. The Wisdom Study brings together 100,000 diverse women from across the United States to find the safest and most effective ways to detect breast cancer for every woman. The Wisdom Study comprises of two approved screening approaches— annual mammograms for all women starting at the age of 40, or a personalized approach to breast cancer screening that is based on a woman's individual risk factors for breast cancer, like her breast density, genes, and family health history. Today, I am so excited to be speaking with Dr. Barbara Parker. Dr. Parker is a breast medical oncologist and professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego, and has been involved with the Wisdom Study since its inception. Her research interests include personalized approaches to cancer screenings and prevention, new therapies on genomic profiling, and breast cancer survivorship. I am also joined with Heather Mountnick-Mann. She joins us today as a participant of the Wisdom Study, and because of this study and personalized approaches to screening, she was able to have her breast cancer detected early. She today talks about these life-saving benefits of knowing your genes, being able to get appropriately screened if you are at a higher risk for developing breast cancer, and she shares her experience as someone who's been diagnosed. I am so excited to have these two amazing women on today's podcast. But before we get started, I wanted to make sure that if you're new to listening to Breast Cancer Conversations, that you know about all of the amazing services and support groups that we provide through our nonprofit organization, survivingbreastcancer.org. So if you're not already familiar with us, please hop on over to survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events to find out more about our weekly programs, our Thursday Night Thrivers support group, our Movement Monday classes, expressive writing classes, art therapy workshops, and so much more. It's all for you there at survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events. What I have always said to my patients, if you subjectively feel there's something abnormal, you feel an extra sensitivity in your breast that is not normal for you, then that's what you should bring to your physician. You shouldn't just discount it. Welcome to the conversation. So I'm uh, uh, Dr. Barbara Parker. I'm a breast medical oncologist and uh, recently partially retired. I um, closed my practice in June 2021, which was all breast cancer, and continue several research projects, one of which is the wisdom trial that I have been involved with for uh, its entire duration for over the past five years. So I look forward to many additional developments in the breast cancer world, and especially in early detection and prevention. And I'm delighted to be able to discuss advances and opportunities uh, in that space. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, wonderful. Glad to have you here. And Heather, it's so nice. I love being able to bring science with practice and lived experiences. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved? I live in San Francisco, and I typically see my doctors through UCSF. And I had seen an email or some type of ad about it, about the wisdom study. And so I volunteered just because it was super convenient and Obviously, um, you can do it in the comfort of your own house and uh, or apartment. And so I had signed up 
You bring up another point too that we can talk about later on in the conversation about trials in general and having them be convenient and accessible and being able to do something in the convenience of your own home. So I look forward to hearing, you know, what actually participants can expect when they get involved in the wisdom trial. But I'm jumping way ahead of myself. I'm just so excited. But these are the topics that we hear from our community that they want access to this information. They want access to trials. And sometimes there's so many barriers that make it really hard for people to get involved. So this is wonderful and a very preemptive opportunity for prevention and you know monitoring risk. Dr. Parker, can you tell me a little bit about, you said you were part of the study from really the beginning and the onset. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the incubation phase, how this all started, who came together, who was, who was at the table? This grew out of our collaboration of the five University of California Cancer Centers led by Dr. Laura Esselman, as you know, who's the principal investigator and leader behind the original wisdom trial. The five UC cancer centers had come together 10 years ago to basically uh, create a breast health learning network. And the wisdom trial came out of those discussions. We all recognize that one size fits all screening is not appropriate given how far we've come since screening mammography was instituted in the 1980s, how much more we understand about the science of cancer development, the risk cancers, cancers for breast cancer, and the fact that individuals have different risk. And so it was time to see if there was a better way forward, a safe way that um, helped individuals understand their risk, had high value for individuals and reduced some of the harms of screening. The Wisdom's trial was started and uh, we look forward to completing it and being able to share that information uh, that may change the standard practices regarding screening for women. When we talk about some of the higher risk populations, can you go into a little bit more detail about who specifically would be at high risk? Well, high risk features are age. Cancer in general is a function of age and in- cancer risk, including breast cancer risk, increase with age. One in eight American women will develop breast cancer in her lifetime. Family history is a significant risk. But however, in our small families currently, in our blended families, we may not fully understand our risk of cancer because family history may not be informative. Individuals may not have siblings, they may may not have aunts and uncles. And so family history cannot be totally relied upon to tell us accurately the risk of inherited risk. Certainly if there's genetic testing and it shows a mutation in a known breast cancer predisposition gene, then that's very informative regarding risk. But we also know lifestyle factors are important. Uh, Reproductive history. When did the woman start menstruating? When did they stop menstruating? How long was their reproductive period? Were they on uh, hormone replacement therapy after menopause, which is a risk factor? And um, do they drink excessive alcohol? Uh, Are they obese? Certainly body mass index greater than 30. Uh, And that relates to, are they exercising and following a healthy diet? So those are risk factors that can be assessed uh, in the context of standard clinical care, but also we are assessing in a much more specific fashion in this trial and including breast density as reported on mammograms as a part of that risk assessment, because we know that increased density on a mammogram is also a risk factor. And is that risk factor with the increased density, is that a risk factor because it's harder to detect on a mammogram? Or does the density itself actually potentially lead to the development of breast cancer? 
Well, certainly there's a detection issue. You can understand that if a mammogram is more white than dark, then it may be difficult to detect an early uh, indicator lesion. But we also know that women who have dense breasts tend to have active breast, difficult to examine, and uh, may have a tendency to have proliferative re uh, lesions, and that could predispose to uh, getting cancer. We don't fully understand the uh, the mechanism behind density and breast cancer risk, but um, it's, it's an area of active study. What I have always said to my patients, if you subjectively feel there's something abnormal, you feel an extra sensitivity in your breast that is not normal for you, then that's what you should bring to your physician. You shouldn't just discount it um, because I, I always respect a woman's opinion. And if she is convinced that something is new, changed, abnormal, then I'm going to pursue that with additional imaging as appropriate. This I am so glad to hear because we need our doctors to counsel us and advocate for us if there are other types of modalities and screenings like an ultrasound or an MRI. But you bring up a very good point regarding breast cancer at a young age because you were in your 30s as you just shared with us. And as you know, screening guidelines have only um, started screening, have suggested starting screening at the earliest at age 40. In the context of the WISDOM trial, we have research proposals going forward to actually start looking at the age group 30 to 40, looking at risk factors such as abnormal genetic mutations that can be inherited. Because if we identify those young women who we know are at elevated risk, then we can start screening early and potentially save lives. We have this idea that we want to screen early. We want to get more information. We want to be proactive. What are you finding in terms of this idea of precision medicine and really being able to tailor screenings to the individual? That is really the focus of the wisdom trial is to personalize screening for women who have a detailed risk assessment. What we're finding is that family history is not always indicative of the risk that in some cases, a minority of cases, we actually find a woman is at much elevated risk and she didn't know it, for example, in your case, and, and I haven't heard Heather's story yet. Um, and in many cases, we find that when you put all the factors into an algorithm looking at risk, the woman may actually be at lower risk than she was assuming. And for example, a 65-year-old who no family history has done all the right things, no dense breast, never had hormone replacement therapy, um, and, and maybe has genetic traits that suggest low risk, she doesn't need or may not need to be screened every year. And so in the context of the wisdom trial, high-risk women are screened more frequently and more intensively. Women who are average risk or low average risk will continue on the annual uh, screening uh, approach, but in the personalized arm, Low-risk individuals, especially older low-risk individuals, will be recommended to screen less frequently actually every other year, which is the standard in many uh, European and other developed countries. So is to personalize the screening according to your risk. Again, one size shouldn't fit all. Right. The same, same recommendations should not exist for someone with a very positive family history as it does for a young person, as it does for an older person who has no family history or no uh, additional risk factors that are controllable. 
That's a really good point. I didn't think of that reciprocal end either. We talk so much about the high risk, but what about the low risk? And I think that right. goes into what you were saying. Maybe we're over screening and over treating and over x-raying and exposing people, which has their own risk factors in and of itself. Yes, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that's where this trial is also hoping to increase the value of screening, which means the quality and the quantity appropriate to whatever the risks are, such that uh, you minimize the harms and you maximize the benefits. Segwaying to Heather as well. So I would love to hear your story a little bit. Again, how you, you mentioned how you got involved with the trial, but then I would be curious, did you identify as either high or low risk, or were you just interested in getting more information for your particular situation? Family history-wise, my grandmother had breast cancer in her 50s. and survived it and, and it was treated. Um, and that was on my dad's side Mm. and that was it. And so I didn't feel like I was extremely high risk. Um, and, uh, I was just doing the annual mammograms. And when I signed up, uh, you can choose which arm of the study you want to participate in. Um, and I chose the more customized approach, which was the, um, where for sure they would be checking my genetics. And I also, it was a few years ago and it was during when a lot of people, a lot of the companies were coming out with um, robust genetics, you know, testing you could have, or, and I, and I knew it was expensive and I didn't know about insurance. So I figured, oh my gosh, what a great way <laughs> to find out at least some of the genetics. And so, um, yeah. And so that's what I did. And then what happened was I found out through the wisdom study that I had a much higher risk. I didn't, I didn't test positive for BRCA or anything, but I tested positive for check two genetic Mm -hmm. mutation. And so that made me have a significantly higher risk for not only breast cancer, but for colon and thyroid. Um, And so what happened after that was um, I think typically Dr. Esterman was my doctor. um, She typically will tell patients to go on tamoxifen. Um, but my specific situation didn't warrant that because I have a retinal eye disease. And so my retinal, um, uh, specialist didn't feel comfortable with that. And so what we decided was to alternate between mammograms and MRIs. Um, and I also had dense breast tissue. And so in order just to be proactively screening me, it made the most sense. So I had had a mammogram, which was negative. And then six months later, I had my MRI and they saw something. Dr. Esterman told me that the downside of MRIs oftentimes are that there's a lot of false positives and she doesn't like that it's so anxiety producing, but knowing I was checked too positive, it made sense. So um, I got it biopsied and surprise, surprise, it was malignant. I couldn't believe it. It was very early, very early stage. It was a small mass, but then they had me have another mammogram like the next day and they still didn't see anything. So it really validated the fact that I had, I had, I would have never known I had this. I was walking around thinking I was fine um, until I had uh, the, the tumor had tested malignant on the MRI specifically. So I feel very grateful for the wisdom study. And I, and I feel fearful for all the women out there who think that they're um, safe getting an annual mammogram because maybe they have no family history. And I just, 
I, I joined the wisdom study as far as being an ambassador, because I said, oh my goodness, we need to get as many women in this study and we need to sw- change this, you know, personalized healthcare immediately. I cannot believe this is the current situation we're in right now. So. Heather, you bring up so many good points. The fact that there was a family history of breast cancer, but it was your grandmother on your dad's side. And many people assume that, oh, that was my grandmother on my dad's side. It doesn't really it's not not as severe, not as significant as if it were on my mother's side. Well, it is. Mm-hmm. And I have the same situation. I have a grandmother on my dad's side who had breast cancer, probably late 40s, and her mother as well. I'm enrolled in the wisdom trial. I did not test positive for any of the breast cancer mutations. And I've been free of breast cancer, but I also have dense breast. And um yeah. I am on the personalized arm and uh, surprisingly um, my genetic traits, these, uh, the polygenic risk score, that's a part of the uh, wisdom trial, which is a supplemental genetic assessment of small, tiny changes in about 300 genes, which on aggregate can also contribute to breast cancer risk. My score came back incredibly low, suggesting oh. that I wasn't as at high risk as I assumed I was on the basis of my family history. So just on that basis, I fell into the group that actually should go every other year at my age, which was a surprise to me. And again, difficult to kind of uh, emotionally accept after all those years of getting annual mammograms and sometimes additional imaging because of my dense breast. So that's my wisdom story on the side. But I'm so delighted that you've shared your story because in your situation, it made a difference because Dr. Esserman was on top of it. You had supplemental imaging because she was concerned about your risk. You couldn't go on chemo prevention with tamoxifen and you found a small early cancer. Now, was it DCIS or invasive? If you don't mind sharing. It was both. She said it was both. I didn't even know you could have both, but it was both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I feel so informed now because... I have a daughter and so I can help with that. And then I have a sister and I have a lot Mm -hmm, of cousins. mm -hmm. And so it just makes me feel like I'm much more empowered and I can empower all the women in my life. Right. right. I'm very grateful for the study. Yeah. Uh, As I always tell individuals, information is power. Yes. Some individuals feel they don't want to know it, but then unfortunately, if you don't uh, open yourself to new information, then you could be two years or five years or 10 years down the road and and regret those decisions. So I'm a strong advocate that information is power. You can still decide that you do or do not want to go forward with additional screening or whatever, but information is power that you can use for your own health care and then use to benefit your family's health care. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. I just got called um, from my geneticist that I was only screened for the smaller eight panel of genes, which, you know, were the the trending ones, right? BRCA, CHECK, PELB, et cetera. And she's calling me back to be screened for a much larger panel, um, you know, five years later, because we want to know and more information now is available. So I think that's another piece of the conversation is as science is evolving to stay on top of the latest things that are coming out. So that's, that's wonderful. Uh, You bring up an excellent point as well, is that your risk when you're 35 or 40, 45 or 65 is not the same. Mm -hmm. You know, as you get older, age contributes to risk. 
but also family history. And maybe that your sister is diagnosed 10 years from now. Well, then all of a sudden your family history calculation is different than it was. So with wisdom, you update your risk information every year. And then if things have drastically changed, you'll get a new risk assessment letter of recommendations for you. But I think we as women don't um, haven't routinely recognized that our risk evolves over time. Yes. And also, if you move from being premenopausal to postmenopausal and you decide to take hormone therapy for a brief period of time, uh, that can also be factored into the risk or you gain a lot of weight or you don't take care of your diet, et cetera. Um, so it's important to understand that risk is not static. It evolves over time. Yes, absolutely. It took me a long time to to realize that, um, you know, that, you know, it's it's not this line in the sand type of approach, but it's continual maintenance, whether it's preventative or survivorship, whatever side you fall on. And you brought up, brought up panel testing. Um, prior to 2013, only one company, Myriad Genetics, was allowed to do testing. And at that point, only for BRCA1 and 2, mm. which were the two genes we understood that were related to breast cancer risk. In 2013, the Supreme Court ruled that you cannot patent genes and that other companies could get into the space and have their own panels to look at a variety of uh, susceptibility genes. And that was really um, a, a sea change. As a result, many vendors got into the space. There was competition for doing testing. There were additional genes that were recognized as being at risk for developing breast cancer. And so the advent of panel testing the uh, cost of testing went down uh, and um, it, it really allowed women to have more information uh, and uh, there to be higher visibility regarding that information. Heather was talking about being able to choose different arms of the study. Can you talk a little bit about you know, what someone could expect when they want to sign up for this wisdom study and what the, how, how does someone choose what side of the study they want to be on? Well, everything is done online, so anyone can enroll throughout the United States, and then um, uh, your enrollment will be managed or attached to one of the, I don't know, 15 sites or so that are active in enrolling wisdom participants. Insurance no longer matters. Initially, insurance did matter because there are some additional costs associated with the personalized arm in terms of the genetic risk testing and uh, potentially imaging, but that has been dealt with under Dr. Esserman's leadership. So the wisdomstudy.org, a woman goes to the site, there's lots of educational material, you read about the study and you sign a consent. And then in the process, you indicate whether you agree to be randomized or not. And as Heather told us, because of her family history, because she really wanted to know, she, rather than 50-50 taking a chance, she would get to get assigned to the personalized arm she actively chose we call this a pragmatic trial design because women can choose or they can choose to be randomized. The randomization is the more rigorous scientific study. On the other hand, we learn from the women who choose their arm as well. So we're following both groups. Our primary analysis will be in the randomized group because that's the most scientifically rigorous. But we learn, we gain wisdom from all the women. The consent form is online, it's read. It's signed through, um, I don't remember if it's DocuSign or some other electronic medium. And then um, 
If you're on the personalized arm, then the color kit comes out for testing for genetics. And usually results are back in approximately six weeks, if I remember correctly. And then once that is uh, assessed in the context of your other risk uh, and uh, you're uh, including your mammography density, then you are given a recommendation letter for what interval and how much screening to perform. And a copy of that goes in your chart and goes to whoever your primary physician is that you identify is my understanding. I'm not in the operations group and it's been several years since I enrolled. So I may not be remembering all the steps correctly. Yeah. But just to give people um, what they can expect, you know, what the process is like. And it sounds very streamlined and straightforward, online, accessible. Right. And you bring up a good point because of feedback from participants, we've actually streamlined the process more. We've tried to make it more intuitive. Okay. And we've listened to the complaints when people have had complaints or constructive feedback for us to consider. So it, it's a better online experience now than it was two years or five years ago. Sure. Oh, I love that. Same thing with our organization, our nonprofit, we're in this constant feedback loop to refine and hear what the needs are and what the what our members are telling us last year may no longer be relevant as we're coming out of COVID. Or because of COVID, right. we had to redirect some of our resources because that was the need at the time. And so to be nimble mm-hmm. and flexible, I think, really gives and builds that trust with the people who are on the study because they're being heard. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the people on the study are our best ambassadors. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about the precision medicine and the personalized medicine for someone with dense tissue, for example, how do you determine what that is? I don't know if that's an appropriate question. Like, would you just recommend, in my experience, would be perhaps I would get an ultrasound instead of a mammogram, or maybe I would do the MRI the way Heather was uh, recommending? Yes. Um, Well, first of all, about half of American women have dense breasts. And as you know, uh, there's a law that says you have to be notified of your density. And, and usually the mammogram letters will say density may make it more difficult to detect early lesions. But uh, we don't, as physicians or primary care physicians, don't specifically use density by itself to recommend additional imaging if the radiologist says I can see everything clearly. And we don't recommend tamoxifen just for density. Now, if density is a part of all the risk and all the risk together, say high risk for this individual, then what we know is tamoxifen can decrease risk in high risk individuals. And and interestingly, it can also decrease breast density. Um, So so you can observe the fact that tamoxifen is having an effect. Um, is this reduction in cancer risk because it's reducing breast density or it's having other cell signaling uh, benefits? Again, active areas of study. But you can observe a decrease in, incident, in, um, in density in women who are on tamoxifen for chemo prevention. But routinely, density is not treated. That's why we on the physician side uh, have concerns about sending out mammogram letters with new information that could concern women and for which we're not going to do anything differently. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And I think that's something we hear a lot in the community um, where we'll have our letter, we'll understand the information, and it really just says to have a, a deeper conversation with your physicians. And right. it kind of leaves us out there. So we talk a lot about, you know, 
the other side of the coin too. So you get this paper back after you get your mammogram screening thinking you're all clear. And I'm thinking about your situation, Heather, where you had a clear mammogram. There was no concern um, because they couldn't detect anything. And so you walk out, you think you're fine. Can we educate people on why density matters, what opportunities they have to understand the the full spectrum of not just their density, but their genetics and their family history and really paint that picture to assess what their risk level is. The other thing is that women who take postmenopausal hormone replacement therapy with estrogen containing products, um, those women can also have increased density in the breast because estrogen is related. I mean, that's why premenopausal women in part, premenopausal women have denser breasts that cycle every month than postmenopausal women. So oh. having the estrogen go away with menopause actually makes the breast easier to image for many people. But there is a subset of women like myself, I still have dense breast, it looks like a premenopausal breast. And that always it that provides challenges for the radiologist. Um, uh, but uh, uh, so avoiding uh, hormone replacement therapy, and to a certain extent, really obese women, um, uh, losing weight sometimes can also make the breast easier to examine and potentially easier to image. So um, talking about breast density, hopefully will trigger conversations about what are all the risks of breast cancer, and especially those that are controllable with diet and lifestyle and and weight and alcohol. Uh, To the extent that triggers conversations with the primary care physician, that's beneficial. Yes, I agree. And I'm not sure if this was similar to you, Heather, but in my experience, you know, there's so much in our lives that we can't control and that even when you're being diagnosed or screened or going for follow-up screenings because it's unsure and you have this anxiety, Dr. Parker, that you're recommending and referencing, what we can control, we clamor for that control. We want to know what is in our power. And so making those lifestyle changes, exercising, even if it's, you know, 30 an extra 30 minutes, you know, a walk around the block and on your lunch break will add up and be significant change. So we're always encouraging, um, you know, those those modalities to, to help empower us and take control of our health where we can. Not to um, minimize also the positive effects of exercise on stress reduction, positive effects on anxiety, and especially in the time of COVID, trying to deal with all the external forces that are interfering with our routines, um, exercise to the extent it can be performed safely at home or in a gym type of situation, uh, there's only benefits. How long is the study going on for? Are you still recruiting? We're, we're still recruiting. We've recruited, recruited and consented, as I recall, over 40,000 patients. That's a lot. We would like to get up to the near 100,000 or 100,000 is our ultimate goal. Uh, We have put in for additional funding to facilitate that. uh, And we should hear in the next few months how successful that um, request for additional funds is. But uh, our goal is to, through one funding mechanism or another, to continue to enroll patients uh, and to, to continue to learn from them. And some of the new things we plan to learn from them is who gets what kind of cancer. We have all of this risk information and there will be a certain number of patients who are diagnosed with cancer during the five to 10 years that we're following them on the WISDOM trial. So we will, for those unfortunately who are diagnosed with cancer, we will ask them for permission to take their pathology specimen and look at it more carefully microscopically and molecularly 
to find out if we can better understand knowing their risk, knowing their genetic makeup, if we can create prediction models for who gets what kind of cancer. We already know that triple negative cancers tend to grow more rapidly and low-grade ER positive breast cancers in older women tend to grow more slowly. So screening mechanisms, if we know that an individual is at risk for triple negative, could vary versus those that are at risk for low-grade ER positive breast cancers. So ultimately, that's our goal is not just to personalize screening, but to personalize screening according to what type of cancer you're most likely to get if you were to get cancer. Mm-hmm. That's so powerful. That's kind of jaw-dropping moment for people who are listening and can't see me on the screen, right? And when we think about technology, when we think about AI, the the things that we could leverage with the data that we're collecting yes. and to make much more informed decisions and, and to that level of accuracy. What role do you see AI playing in the future of breast cancer? A very, a very excellent question. Uh, one of our proposals as a part of this next granting cycle is to use AI approaches with the pathology, with the radiology, and with the genomics yes. to really come up with better models for prediction, again, of who gets what kind of cancer um, and uh, be more refined in our predictions of how frequently and how uh, intensively to get screened. I love learning about all the studies we have to look forward to. It gives just so much hope. Well, I'll just mention a couple of other things. Um, uh, There are studies to look at whether um, new hormonal type therapies, uh, new what we call CIRMs in the class of kind of tamoxifen and raloxifen uh, might be easier to tolerate and and just as effective. and uh, even in, uh, there is this national study that's ongoing in BRCA carriers to look to see if um, uh, a bone active drug called denosumab, also Prolia for people who have thin bones, might actually have preventative effects. So not only are we looking to personalize screening, but personalize prevention as well, according to what the risks are, what the genetics are and what a woman's um, a tolerability of the side effects of any treatment is. Yeah, I appreciate you addressing the side effects side as well, because the quality of life and, you know, especially on tamoxifen or any of these hormone replacements is, you know, can be debilitating depending on the person. Everyone responds differently. And so I think that's part of the conversation we need to be having as well. Excellent point. Excellent point. Especially in the prevention realm, we have women who have, they're feeling fine. They have no side effects because they haven't had cancer and they're not on any treatment. We give them a treatment to prevent cancer and the odds of their getting cancer is elevated, but it's not 50% or hundred percent. So they're taking a medicine for five years, experiencing those side effects for the possibility of reduction of their risk. So it's much more difficult to, um, uh, for women to feel comfortable with that algorithm as a result. And that's why we only have about 4% of women who might be eligible to take tamoxifen or similar hormonal therapies taking them. And so to the extent we can refine our models for how to uh, predict who's going to get what type of cancer and who's going to benefit the most from prevention approaches, then hopefully we'll be able to have a higher uptake of uh, preventative. The other thing is that we don't really have a marker for a 
blood marker, for example, um, for uh, breast cancer risk, like cholesterol is for heart disease. Wouldn't it be great if we had a blood marker for breast cancer risk and you take tamoxifen and you see your marker go down, just like statin, you take a statin and you see your cholesterol go down. That would be potentially more incentivizing to women than just saying, take your medicine, the side effects, we hope you'll be able to tolerate. We don't know how much it's benefiting you. Uh, so there are a number of people who are looking at surrogate markers, blood-based and otherwise, such that we would um, be able to better monitor patients, who's getting what kind of benefit, and um, also partner with patients you know, in uh, uh, promoting compliance with the medic- medication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the compliance piece too is so important. We don't talk about often. And you know, as someone who takes multiple pills every single day as part of my maintenance therapy, it's, you know, no, it's on the honor system, right? That I wake up and I exactly. So, right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Heather, how are you doing now? So, we heard like this <laughs> life changing, amazing discovery. You caught your breast cancer early, which was amazing to be associated with the wisdom trial and showing really that that arm really helped you personally, which is amazing. How are you doing now? And in the context also of your family, I think sometimes getting genetic testing Mm -hmm. is not just a personal choice, but it's something that affects, as you were mentioning, like your cousins and your extended family. And as we were talking, some people may not want to know. So I'm just curious how how the follow-up is going and how you're doing and how the family is doing. Sure. Thanks for asking. Um, so when I um, originally found out I tested positive for check two, I had sent out an email to all of my relatives and they found it, you know, very um, loving and helpful and they weren't scared. They were like, thank you. Thank you for immediately letting me know. And I'm going to reach out to my primary care and or see how I can, um, a lot of them actually decided to enroll in the study or see what they could do to um, just gain more information. As far as my personal experience was, I had Dr. Esterman as my breast surgeon and I can't, you know, do better than her. <laughs> she was exactly. phenomenal. And uh, I still see her every year now as follow-ups. And because mine was hormone positive, you guys were talking about all these side effects. I mean, obviously I get to experience um, the aromatase inhibitors to eliminate any estrogen in my system. And so those have a fair number of side effects. Um but I think when you're um, being treated by like research-oriented physicians, such as at UCSF and people who are um, really um, at the cusp of all of the information that can help you and convince you to stay on certain medications, because here are the numbers, here are the percentages. Yes. This is what we're looking at. I mean, if you were, cause I, I belong to some, um, breast cancer forums and I read a lot about these comments from women who say, you know, it's about my quality of life. And I really think I just want to go off. And I look at my nine-year-old daughter and say, I'm not going off of these meds. I'm staying on. I want to, Uh, live as long as I can, knock on wood, and um, do whatever's in my power and in my control. And if it means taking these medications and having the side effects and then taking more meds to address those side effects, it is what it is. But everything seems to continue to change and evolve, you know, with medicine in a a great way, right? And so um, I can only like look forward and be hopeful. 
Yes. Well, I'm inspired by you as someone who also is on an aromatase inhibitor. And I feel like I wake up every day like, oh, has it been five years yet? Has it been five years? And But then <laughs> I still I Me still too. do it. And you know, now they're talking about some of the benefits of being on for seven years and all of these things. Right. And I'm just like, oh, just get, you know, one day at a time, one day at a time for everybody. Right. <laughs> um, Me too. Me too. So I'm glad you're doing well. And I think it's important too to understand your why, whether it's your daughter, your family, your joy to V, yeah. something that you're looking forward to, and how important these trials are. We talk a lot, especially when we are trying to dispel some of the myths around clinical trials. You actually probably end up getting better care because you're being monitored and watched and people are looking out for you. And why wouldn't you want to be in this group of amazing experts and scientists and researchers who are here to help you to make sure that you have the best outcome possible? Absolutely. 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 It's your direct access to the brains in this field. I mean, how could you not be signing up? Absolutely. Yeah, it's not as Heather was suggesting. And as you said, um, it's not just the protocol itself saying that you should get X, Y or Z, but rather the 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 physicians and um, surgeons who lead these trials are some of the leaders in the field and they want to make sure that their patients have access to cutting edge therapies. Mm-hmm. And so we wouldn't know that tamoxifen works for loxifen, aromatase inhibitors, and all the CDK4-6, et cetera. We wouldn't know that any of these drugs work if we hadn't enrolled clinical individuals uh, in clinical trials 40 years ago, 30 years ago, mm-hmm. 20 years ago. So it's the way we move the field forward. It's the way we increase cure rates. It's the way we create hope for the next generation. Dr. Parker, Heather, thank you so much for being on today's podcast and sharing your wisdom, yes, pun intended, about the wisdom study and your experience with breast health, breast cancer, women's health in general, genetics. We're just overflowing with information today. So thank you again so much. And we look forward to staying in touch and hearing how the study progresses. And thank you all for listening and tuning in week after week here on Breast Cancer Conversations. Please be mindful that all of our content and information is for educational purposes only and is never a substitute for medical advice. If you want to hang out again, please check out survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events, where you can RSVP to our Thursday Night Thrivers weekly meetup, our Movement Monday classes, workshops, seminars, and so much more. We can also continue the dialogue online via social media. Our Instagram handle is survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word, and you can follow us on Twitter at SBC underscore ORG. Until next time, keep on thriving.